0: This podcast may contain adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Dark and Stormy Podcast, where we explore topics ranging from the weird and creepy the downright terrifying. So, if you like horror, true crime, urban legends, and other dark themes, I have so much to tell you and I just can't wait. There are many well-known stories of murderous kids and teenagers out there, especially if you listen to or watch a lot of true crime shows. On today's episode, I'll be bringing you some lesser-known crime stories involving these murderous kids and teenagers from around the world. Story number one, a wannabe murderer sets her plan in motion. On October 21st, 2009, nine-year-old Elizabeth Alton of Cole County, Missouri, disappeared while walking home from a friend's house. A massive search soon commenced. Elizabeth had last been seen by a six-year-old friend named Emma, who lived close by. A large wooded area separated their houses, and during the search they were able to ping Elizabeth's cell phone, which was shown to be located in those woods. A local sheriff's department was already involved, as was the FBI. As they were searching the woods, they came across a large hole that had been dug in the dirt. When everyone who lived in the area had been questioned, Emma's 15-year-old half-sister, Alyssa, admitted that she had dug the hole in the woods. She claimed she did this so that she could bury animals. Law enforcement thought that this was very unusual and worrying behaviour, and questioned Alyssa further. They also got a warrant to search her house. In her room, they found bizarre and creepy drawings, as well as her journal, On the day of Elizabeth's disappearance, there was an entry which had been scribbled over to obscure the words. The only words that were able to be made out said something about a cut throat. They brought Alyssa in for questioning and told her they had her diary. It wasn't long before Alyssa's resolve began to crumble. She first told the detectives that Elizabeth had died after accidentally falling down in the woods, but eventually... She gave in and told the true story. She had instructed her younger half-sister, Emma, to bring Elizabeth over. She then walked her out to the woods, attacked Elizabeth with a knife, and hit and stabbed her until she was dead. She then buried her in a very shallow grave. Once law enforcement were able to fully read Ellis' journal entry from that day, it revealed something truly terrifying – Alyssa described what she had done to Elizabeth in detail and called it amazing. Law enforcement was led to Elizabeth's body by Alyssa. When autopsy was complete, they saw that details of her death fit perfectly with what Alyssa had written in her diary. Chillingly, they also found out that Alyssa had actually dug two graves several days before the murder. Some thought that maybe she had originally planned to kill two of her younger siblings. During the investigation, Alyssa's social media accounts were found, which described some of her hobbies as cutting herself and killing people. A friend of hers would also come forward to reveal that, a few months prior, Alyssa had said she wondered what it would be like to kill someone. A couple of years after the murder, the prosecution team decided to offer Alyssa a plea deal rather than go to trial. Under the rules of the agreement, she would be eligible for parole after 35 years in prison. Elizabeth's family were horrified by the outcome of the case. The family filed a lawsuit against Alyssa and her family for wrongful death and received a large settlement. Alyssa had a history of depression and self-harm prior to the crime. At the time of the murder, she was living with her grandparents and her father was in prison for assault. Story number two, The Warlock Murder. On July 8th, 1995, 14-year-old Sandy Charles and an 8-year-old friend murdered 7-year-old Jonathan Thimpson in the tiny town of La Ronge in Saskatchewan, Canada. Disturbingly, they also cooked pieces of the victim's skin. This crime was apparently inspired by the movie Warlock, which Charles was obsessed with. He had previously been known as a decent kid before he started showing signs of mental illness as he matured into a teenager. He said he heard voices and this murder was committed to serve Satan. Charles was found not guilty by reason of insanity and has lived in a psychiatric institute ever since the crime. During his years in the Psychiatric Institute, he has shown more deviant behaviour by attacking a nurse as well as making a short-lived escape from the facility. Under Canadian law, he may be able to walk free one day. Story number three, three's a crowd. Most American true crime fans have heard the terrifying story of Skylar Niece's murder, but many have not heard of a very similar case which took place in Collie, Western Australia, in June 2006. That month, 15-year-old Eliza Jane Davis was murdered by two 16-year-old friends during a sleepover party. Much like the murder of Skylar Niece, this crime was committed because the murderers just felt like it. During the party, the girls had been using a variety of drugs, including crystal meth, but the murder was actually committed the following morning. The two girls, who were best friends, woke up in the morning and gathered up supplies to kill Eliza. They strangled her with a cord and temporarily hid her body in the cellar of the house. After they managed to bury her body, they disposed of her personal belongings before reporting her missing. Despite giving no real explanation for the crime, it is thought that it may have been sparked by jealousy. Perhaps one of the murderers didn't want Eliza getting in the way of their friendship. The two girls were known to be hard partiers with minimal supervision. They had little attachment to other people except each other, and in many ways they acted like twin sisters rather than just friends. After the crime, the two girls participated in the search for Eliza, but within a short time period, they both decided to confess to the crime. After confessing, neither showed remorse or any real emotion in relation to the crime. They were both sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 15 years, Because of Western Australian laws, the names of the underage murderers were never to be released to the media. Story number four, a teenage murder spree in France. Toulon, France is a medium-sized city located around 700 kilometers, or roughly 430 miles south of Paris, on the Mediterranean coast. In 1995, this lovely locale would become the site of one of the deadliest murder sprees in modern French history. On the 23rd of September that year, a 16-year-old boy would begin a murderous rampage, which would result in 16 deaths over the course of two days. At the time of the murders, Eric Borrow was in his last year of school and living with his mother, stepfather and 11-year-old half-brother in the community of Solis Pont. There are many possible explanations as to what tipped him over the edge that day. Some say both his mother and stepfather beat him. Others recount that his mother was an over-the-top religious type and his stepfather was a fascist. What is known is that he had only been living with his family in this way for a few years prior to the murders. Before that, he had spent much of his life with his grandparents and other family members. His stepfather was known to have previously been a member of a far right-wing political party. Borrell himself had a fascination with the military and weapons. When the house was searched by police later, they saw a swastika and a picture of Hitler on his bedroom wall. No one knows what incited the violence, but what is known is that on the evening of the 23rd of September, he shot and beat to death his stepfather, Yves Bechet, and half-brother, Jean-Yves Bechet. A few hours later, his mother, Marie-Jean Parenti, returned home from church and was shot once, dying immediately. Later that night, Boucher's adult son, Jean-Luc, came to visit and found the bodies. He called the police, who immediately arrived to search the house. It was obvious someone had cleaned up some of the blood and had covered the bodies. Missing from the house was 16-year-old Eric and his stepfather's rifle. The next morning, Eric showed up in the nearby village of Coors, where he had travelled by foot. He went to the home of his classmate and good friend, 17-year-old Alan Guillemet, and apparently after a brief conversation, abruptly shot him in the head in front of several witnesses. After the murder of his only friend, he took to the village roads and began shooting at anyone in sight. At first, those who saw him coming were not alarmed. He was walking calmly and though he was carrying a rifle, he didn't appear menacing. Some thought that he could be going out for an early morning hunt. Over the next few minutes, he shot and killed Marius Boudon, 59, Andre Colletta, 65, Rudolf Nkovala, 59, Mohamed Murad, 41, Pascal Matachi, 15, Denise Otto, 77, Mario Pajani, 81, André Tourette, 62, and Jenae Violette, 48. He also injured several other people during this time. By 8am, roughly 30 minutes after the shooting in the village had started, police had arrived and surrounded Borrell. Rather than face the music, he committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. One month later, on the 23rd of October, 1995, 68-year-old Jean Lugiero died in hospital from her injuries. A few months later, on the 2nd of March, 1996, 68-year-old Pierre Marigliano was the last victim of the attack to succumb to his injuries. Story number five. The Juggalo Murder. On January 21, 2005, 16-year-old Adrienne Reynolds went missing. She had not shown up for her after-school job at a restaurant in East Milan, Illinois, and her father soon filed a missing persons report. During the search, it was revealed that the last people to see Adrienne had been her friends Sarah Kolb and Corey Gregory. They said they had dropped her off near her house. When Adrian had moved to town just a few months prior, she had begun attending an alternative school to get her GED. At the school, she made friends with Sarah, Corey and their extended group of friends, many of whom were self-described juggalos, fans of the insane clown posse. Apparently, Sarah was at first somewhat romantically interested in Adrian, but after a while, began to feel somewhat threatened as Adrian became popular among her group of friends and expressed an interest in dating Corey. Just a few days after Adrian went missing, Corey broke down and revealed the truth. He and Sarah had invited Adrian to hang out with them on the day she went missing, and then he had helped Sarah strangle her to death in the back of their car. When he led authorities to her remains, they were shocked to realize that Adrienne had also been dismembered. Corey admitted that he, Sarah and their friend Nathan Gooday, had dismembered Adrienne with a sore and disposed of her remains in a few different locations. It was a shocking case that made national headlines Few people could imagine that a teenage girl could be capable of such a brutal crime. Sarah went to trial in October 2005, but that ended in a mistrial. After her second trial in 2006, she was found guilty of first-degree murder as well as some related charges and was sentenced to 53 years in prison. Corey Gregory pled guilty to all charges and received 45 years in prison. Nathan was found guilty in relation to helping dispose of the body and spent a few years in juvenile detention before being released in 2008. Four years later, in 2012, he died in a car crash. Adrian is still remembered as a friendly and funny girl who just wanted to be friends with everyone. Story number six, The Warwick Slasher. On July 27, 1987, Carl Beatty of Warwick, Rhode Island, came home from a late shift at work to find his 27-year-old sister, Rebecca Spencer, stabbed to death at their home. The mother of two had been home alone that night and packing to move when she was attacked by her killer. The murder would remain unsolved for several years. In September nineteen eighty nine, another horrifying scene would unfold in Warwick when Marie Bouchard went to the home of her thirty-nine-year-old daughter Joan Heaton, where Joan lived with her two daughters, Jennifer, aged ten, and Melissa, aged eight. When Marie and her other daughter Mary Lou arrived at Joan's house, they found a scene right out of a nightmare. Joan and her two daughters lay dead on the floor. They had all been stabbed and hit repeatedly, and there was blood everywhere. The city had a population of only 85,000 at the time, so it did not take long to connect this murder to the unsolved murder of Rebecca Spencer, which shared commonalities with the murders of the Heaton's. An FBI profiler became involved, and he speculated that the same person was likely responsible for all four murders due to the similarities in the crimes and the fact that the two crime scenes were close to each other. He thought they could have been crimes of opportunity because in both scenes, the murder weapon had belonged to the victim's. The profiler also stated it was likely that the killer injured himself during the Heaton murders because each victim had been stabbed 30 to 50 times. The next day, detectives came across a neighbour boy, 15-year-old Craig Price. They asked him what had happened to his hand, which had a large bandage on it. He claimed that he had punched a car window and cut his hand. The cops thought the story unbelievable and found no report of a broken car window in the area. They decided to question him further, and it didn't take long for his story to change. When law enforcement got a search warrant for Craig's house, they found evidence directly connected to the Heaton family murders. Friends of his, whom he burglarized houses with, claimed that he had bragged about killing Rebecca Spencer and he quickly admitted to this murder when questioned. He had been just 13 years old when he broke into her house and stabbed her over 50 times. Because of his age and the laws at the time, Price was originally given just five years in a youth facility where he received relative freedom and special treatment. Joan Heaton's mother and sister became part of a non profit created for the express purpose of changing laws to keep Price behind bars for longer. Towards the end of his five years, he verbally threatened an employee at a juvenile centre. In addition, he was charged with contempt of the court for refusing to agree to psychiatric assessments while in detention. More time was added to his sentence. Since then, he has received further penalties for verbally and physically assaulting guards. It is unknown if or when Price will be released from prison. He is currently on track to get out in 2022. But with the huge public support for keeping him behind bars for life, there's always the possibility that Rhode Island will find a way to do just that. Story number seven, the youngest female murderer in UK history. On June 7th, 1992, the body of 18-year-old Katie Ratcliffe was found lying on the ground in Surrey, England. She had been viciously attacked, stabbed nearly 30 times, and sexually mutilated. She had last been seen leaving a nightclub in the early hours of the morning. It would be several years before her murder was solved, primarily because law enforcement was looking for a totally different kind of suspect. At the time of the crime, it had been compared to the Jack the Ripper crimes in terms of their sheer barbarism and brutality, and profilers became involved to try and find a suspect. They were focusing on a profile of an adult man, possibly in his thirties or older, they believed it would have to have been a relatively strong individual because Katie's body had been moved after the murder. Exactly two years after the murder, on 7th of June 1994, a young girl at a school in Camberley was stabbed by a fellow classmate, 14-year-old Sharon Carr. Fortunately, This happened in the school bathroom, and a group of students soon came upon the scene and the victim's life was saved. She had been stabbed in the lung and nearly died. Sharon was sentenced to two years in a juvenile facility. While there, she let it slip to fellow detainees that she had been responsible for the murder of Katie Ratcliffe. She was questioned by law enforcement and she revealed facts of the crime which had not been released to the public. They searched her home and found extensive journal entries about the crime, describing how the killing had made her feel powerful. One entry chillingly reads, "'Killing is my business, and business is good.'" She had written about the crime many times in the years since it happened, and she never once expressed regret or remorse. She was arrested and, while awaiting trial, retracted her confession. Nevertheless, she would go on trial in 1997. She was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in prison. However, she was to be remanded to a psychiatric facility indefinitely. 26 years on, and she is still in custody. It is unknown what exactly drove her to become a killer but like many people who go on to commit brutal murders, she had a violent and volatile mother. It is said that her mother taught her voodoo rituals to gain power, which involved sacrificing animals. Once she was detained, she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and various other mental health problems. During her time in the facility, she has had various incidents of attacking guards and threatening other inmates, and it seems unlikely at this point that she will ever be released. This has been a Muse to Jour production. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find us on the socials, all our links can be found in the show notes. Listener feedback is much appreciated, and we look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, keep that nightlight on, because you never know what horrors await you in the dark.